This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by GoGo. Introducing SmartShield, GoGo's exclusive customer membership program that protects your best in-class, in-flight Wi-Fi system. GoGo's SmartShield membership provides greater cost control, exclusive discounts, and peace of mind with equipment protection. Plus, you can still take advantage of savings of up to $35,000 on your GoGo Advance install. Get technology that adapts as you do, and when you order by December 31st, 2021, you'll have until December 31st next year to install and save. Visit gogo.to slash aopa-podcast to learn more. That's gogo.to slash aopa-podcast. I was pushing the negative G's upside down, and all of a sudden I was soaked in gasoline when I was inverted at about 1,500 feet. So I immediately flipped the airplane right side up. And when I did that, all the fuel went down through me and went down through the floorboard, and the fuel caught on fire inside the cockpit. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Henry Coffeen. Henry's been flying for over 40 years and has got over 8,000 hours, all of it in general aviation flying. He's flown and owned everything from an ultralight up to a Citation jet, and currently he's a part owner in an Albatross. Owns a Cirrus, a Pipistrol, a glider flyer. He's a commercial pilot with an instrument rating, a seaplane rating, a glider rating, and he holds a Cessna 525 type rating. Henry also holds a surface-level aerobatic waiver and has performed at air shows flying aerobatics in his Edge 540 across the country. But today he's going to share a story with us of flying his Edge 540 in an aerobatic routine when things went drastically wrong. Henry, thanks for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. So, Henry, you and I were introduced through our mutual friend, Katie Pribble, and she told me the outline of your story, which was just fascinating. So do you mind share the story with our audience? No, sir. I'll be happy to tell you. So basically, it happened a few days before Thanksgiving. I think uh, maybe there's a little bit of a part of this puzzle that I might want to share with you as well. So the accident happened on November 24th, and on October 19th, there was the massive floods down in South Texas, and I had 16 feet of water go through my house and destroy my home. So I was living in San Antonio at the time because our house was being rebuilt, and I'd flown a P-model Bonanza over to a little small airfield 
outside of San Antonio where they filmed the movie The Great Waldo Pepper. It's called Zeal Field, uh, which is where they did steerman training back in the olden days, mm-hmm. and it's really close to uh, Randolph Air Force Base. And that is where we had an aerobatic box. So I flew over there on a beautiful afternoon a couple of days before Thanksgiving, got into my edge, 540, and um, I had a you know pre-fly the airplane. Everything was great. It was perfect, perfect day. And I went up and started practicing what we call in aerobatics unknown maneuvers. I used to fly advanced aerobatics uh, for competition. And then I was working on a freestyle maneuver. And then that freestyle maneuver, there is a a negative G element within that um, sequence. And so I was pushing the negative Gs upside down. And all of a sudden, I was soaked in gasoline when I was inverted at about 1500 feet. And so I immediately flipped the airplane right side up. And when I did that, all the fuel went down through me and went down through the floorboard where we all have a plexiglass floorboard so we can see the aerobatic box and making sure that we're still within the parameters or where we are looking through for an air show. And uh, the fuel, caught on fire inside the cockpit. Hmm. Um, at the time, I didn't know that the fire was only really inside the cockpit. And so I um, turned the magnetos off. Nothing happened. I shut the fuel off. Nothing happened. By nothing happened, Henry, do you mean that the fire was still burning? So you were shutting all this yeah, stuff but, off. And meanwhile, yeah. can you give us a sense of uh, so you're right side up, but in your roughly 1,500 feet somewhere in there, but uh, you've got fire. Is it all in the cockpit, as in you can't even see yeah. out? Is it just in the floor? Or yeah, can you no, help it's, us? It, it's, it's all in the cockpit, the whole cockpit. I had a pair of Ray-Ban glasses on that actually melted, so I could only see out of the peripheral side of those old kind of Wayfair glasses. Um, I could see out the sides. So, yeah, the fire had had soaked me in gasoline, and then basically uh, the whole fire was in the cockpit. So those Edge 540 cockpits are are pretty small and tight, so you're inside this cockpit, and the whole thing is engulfed in flames, so you're sitting in the middle of this fireball, basically. That's exactly right. (laughs) And so not knowing that what was going on, after shutting the the magnetos, the fuel, turning the key off. Um, I knew that I probably need to bail out. So in my particular airplane, it had a mechanism where you squeezed two metal rods together and that was supposed to release the canopy and it would release and leave the aircraft. So I put the airplane in a dive at 1400 feet and I was having problems squeezing the getting it to release was it because the handle was so hot you couldn't grasp it and and i'm also wondering i'm just trying to picture myself sitting in this this fireball with the intense heat that came all of a sudden and can you can you see your magnetos or all this is by feel and are you are, yeah, is your no, clothes on fire and yeah yeah everything's on fire when i landed uh, all my clothes were burned pretty much off I had a pair of Nomex shoes on 
and a Nomex helmet because I'd just gone from work a couple of days before Thanksgiving and I was in a short sleeve t-shirt and a pair of blue jeans and I had, you know, two Nomex. I had golf gloves on. They were burned off too. So I could see fire. I couldn't see, you know, visually where I was in the space that I was in. And certainly when I put the aircraft in a dive, the problem with, with opening the cockpit wasn't the heat. It was the pressure. The Mm -hmm. FAA said I was going somewhere around 185 miles an hour when I was pointing the nose down. And so that became harder and harder to open the canopy. But once the canopy did open, uh, they, they also said, the doctor said that I inadvertently held my breath, which saved my lungs. Uh, I didn't know I did that, but evidently I did. And so when I got out of the airplane, I reached back for the D-ring, and it had melted away from my front of my parachute. So, Henry, can I uh, stop you just there for a minute? So why did you put the airplane in a dive? Because I thought the I thought the flames were on the outside of the airplane, uh, not okay. the inside. Okay. And I felt like if I could put the airplane in a dive, I had a chance to put it out. Okay. So originally, you know, when I, after many months talking with the FAA, I assumed what had happened is that the uh, fuel cap had come off, or my flop, my uh, header tank, which was a little square tank that has a float tube in it that is able when you're flying upside down to sustain fuel into the airplane. I thought that maybe the rubber hose that connected to the main fuel tank had broken. And the cause of the accident, according to the NTSB, was a cold weld on the main tank of the fuel tank ruptured. Mm, mm, Okay, so... So, so you think it's on the outside, and you're thinking if you can get enough speed, it'll it'll put the fire out. But of course, the balance of that is you're somewhat blind. You're being burned pretty much all over your body. Now you're putting it in a dive towards the ground. So time is now becoming very precious. Very precious, yes, sir. <laughs> and so you grab the handle and pull it back, and your canopy does depart. But I've always wondered this, too, from those little airplanes, those cockpits are so tight. Is it hard to get out of that tight space? To How do you actually free yourself without hitting the tail or some other piece of the airplane? I'm not sure how it happened, but the way I put it to my friends, if you're on fire, you're going to figure out a way to get out. And so um, I had to release two seat belts because you have a safety belt and you have your main belt, which is a five-part harness. So I was able to get that done with my right hand. I opened the cockpit with my left hand and the canopy did release, but the FAA said it was still attached partially to the aircraft when it landed, when it blew up. So it never actually completely departed. Mm. But when I left the plane, I reached for the D-ring with my right hand and the Velcro that holds the D-ring in place had melted it away. And so the D-ring was actually flopping behind me, and I knew where the little tube was, where the metal uh, rope goes into the parachute, and I just grabbed that and pulled it, and it had deployed right away. 
onlooker said that I was around 500 feet when it deployed. When I when I got out of the airplane, and they said about 250 feet when the parachute opened. Oh man! And so I got a full canopy. Yeah, I got a full canopy, and uh, I saw the aircraft go past me uh, through the ray bands, the peripheral vision. I could see it in flames going past me. It wasn't you know a long time before I landed. I landed about. Oh, 50 feet downwind from the airplane that was on fire. And uh, when I looked down, my hands and feet and my hands and arms were solid white. And uh, I reached up to see if I still had a nose or lips because I could tell I was on fire. And right after I landed, there was a guy in, in a field plowing a field was so freaked out. He comes up to me and has one of these old Motorola flip phones and says, uh, son, you're hurt. You're hurt real bad. And I go, yes, sir. I, I know that. Um, I said, please call nine one one. And he, he jumps out and grabs his old Motorola flip phone and he can't figure it out. And so I dial nine one one send and I hand it back to him. He calls nine one one. By this time there were people coming from the airport and from the highway that had stopped to try to help me. And so I was sitting on the side of his front tire trying to just relax while I didn't break any bones or anything. I was just a uh, third degree burns over 30% of my body. And so it actually felt better for me to keep moving a little bit. So I asked him where the airport was and I said, I'm just going to start walking towards that direction. And, um, I started walking towards the airport and a bunch of people got around me and helped me get back to the airport. So you, you, you actually walked back to the airport? I did. So a, kind of another crazy portion of this story is there was a big farmer, about 6'5", about 300 pounds, that I remembered helped me get through some bushes. I had to walk through some bushes to get under a fence to get back to the airport. And he wrapped his arms around me so the bushes wouldn't touch my skin and lifted the fence up for me, and they had an ambulance waiting on the other side of the fence. No one ever remembered that old man that had helped me, and about 10 years ago, I met him again at a breakfast place in Seguin, Texas. <laughs> hmm. How did that, how did you happen to meet him? There Was that a design to meet I him? Just, uh, I just, no, sir, I, uh, no one ever recalled him, ever. None of the paramedics, nobody, none of the witnesses, no one ever remembered him being there. And I knew that this guy had been there and I was having breakfast in Seguin, Texas, which is not too far from where this airport was. And I kept looking over at this guy and I went up to him and I said, by any chance, did you help a guy out uh, in an airplane crash out of Zeal Field 20 something years ago? And he goes, I sure did. And I went, yep, that was me. Wow. What a reunion. Yeah. What a reunion. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. What a story, boy. What what it happened so fast. What what do you estimate from the time that suddenly your cockpit is filled with fire until you're sitting on the ground? How much time do you think elapsed in that whole time span? Maybe fifth maybe fifteen, twenty seconds, maybe. Yeah. I'm sure it may have been longer because just, I don't know, but it feel it felt like it happened pretty quick. 
Yeah. You yeah. know, from the time it, it happened until the time on the ground, you know, maybe 15 seconds. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Well, as I as I just listened to your story, Henry, it's amazing to me because time was so critical and there were elements in there where some panic or some, you know, natural anxiety could have really played a role in an unsuccessful outcome. Just for example, I mean, your cockpit's filled with fire, you're burning, and you're, you, you have to make the decision to die because you think that's going to put the flames out. Then you have to figure out how to get that canopy open. It's different because there's so much pressure on it, but somehow you do. And then your, your D-ring's not there. And for our listeners, a D-ring is the ring that pulls your parachute open. So when you're wearing a parachute harness, it's a big ring. It's shaped in the form of a D, which is why it's called that. It's meant to be big. So it's usually sitting right on your chest, and you grab it and pull it. But in this case, you've only got seconds, and you can't find your D-ring. And somehow you're able to keep your head about you through all that and make the right decisions when you really only had seconds. I don't know. What do you what do you attribute that to? Well, that morning I was at a um, I was with a bunch of horse guys, and my wife was riding horses. And one of the uh, cowboys asked me, "Have you ever jumped out of an airplane?" And I said, "Yes, sir. I've done it twice, just to make sure I never wanted to do it again." And so I had just done a a tandem. I've just done a solo jump on a static line um, about a month before that. And I had never been in this airplane in my life without a parachute on. It was built for me. The parachute was built for the airplane. And so, you know, I never flew the airplane one time without putting on the parachute because it just didn't fit you right. So I had known a lot about the parachute. It was a national parachute is the name of the company. And uh, I, I knew where all the pieces of the puzzle were. You know, the guy that packed my airplane was a military guy just down the road at Randolph. I just had it packed. So, you know, I was just lucky that everything worked out and I was familiar with how the parachute worked. And I'd done it before. It really does speak to the value of training, doesn't it? Because when you're in a critical situation like that, I mean, it is going to be unusual and chaotic, and somehow you have to know your muscle memory and your movements in the system well enough to be able to work through it very quickly, but error-free. And when I was in the military, I flew fighters, and we, we did a lot of work with our ejection seats, exactly that, to understand how, the movements we were going to make if, if that time ever, became, ever came. And yeah. so it really... It really sounds like your training and the recency of that training really paid off for you. Yeah, for sure. I was, uh, you know, I think a lot of luck probably had to been on my side because the time I, I just, uh, if anything would have 
happened a few more seconds later. It probably would have been too late if I would have known how close I was to the ground. Not sure I would have made those decisions, but I didn't really know where I was or how close I was to the ground when all the pieces of the puzzle started going down. And so um, I was just lucky to get out and the parachute opened. You know, again, the FAA said that the parachute opened. And when I was going over 180 miles an hour, the parachute's not rated, but for 150 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So that in itself, you know, was lucky, too, uh, that the parachute held me. Can we go back to the state of flight that you were in? You had mentioned that this was a known maneuver, which kind of implies that there are some other unknown maneuvers. So can you talk about that difference from an aerobatic standpoint? What's what's the distinction there? So in aerobatic competition, you do three separate flights. You do what's called a known, which is a rehearsed uh, set of maneuvers, different mount, let's say it's 10 or 12. And you do those in sequence within a 3,300 square foot box. And then you have a freestyle, which is one that you come up with. And then you have an unknown that you have to memorize and that's given to you the day of the competition that nobody is supposed to have flown. And so what I would do is I would fly, when I'd go practice, I'd fly my known sequence, my freestyle, and then I would take a random unknown that I'd flown before and use that to just, uh, just to keep, you know, to keep flying. And so in one of those sequences had this outside loop with a snap roll on the top of it. And so I was at the bottom of the loop when the, uh, when the fuel tank gave way. You were at the bottom of a loop, but you were at the bottom of an inverted, an outside loop, right? Is that right? You were pushing up. I was pushing up and pushing myself out of the cockpit, not into my seat. I was doing negative G's instead of positive G's. And that airplane was able to handle a lot of high G's. We call them micro G's, whereas you guys as fighter pilots would sustain a 9G sustained pull where we might do 12 to 13 positive G's, but they're only for microseconds. But we did a lot of negative G's, which fighter pilots don't necessarily do. That's exactly right. <laughs> negative G's are so painful. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, you guys have my total respect. Uh, the you guys that do these uh, aerobatic sequences with the the amount of negative G's and the frequency of yeah. negative G's that you do is pretty amazing. So you were inverted and pushing up into this outside loop. So some pretty good negative G's, and somewhere in there is where that fu- a weld on your fuel tank gave way. That's ultimately what they think happened. Yes, sir. That's exactly what happened. And so it was not. A, it wasn't a slow leak or anything like that. It was a gusher. It just. I went from dry to full, face full of fuel. And then who knows what ignited it, right? Could have well, been a spark I mean, from the radio. No, or I, what ignited yeah. it is because of the location of the exhaust and all these aerobatic airplanes. At that time, things are different today, but at that time, the exhaust came out right below my feet, right below the plexiglass, and the fuel was easily escaped through the plexiglass and the frame of the aircraft and the fumes and it was ignited through the exhaust system is what they were what they were sure of that had happened. 
Okay, okay. And so based on where that rupture happened and how the fuel made it out, nothing, you, there was nothing you could do to uh, limit that fire. There was, there was nothing. nothing. It was ruptured. It was free-flowing free fuel. Flowing. And so it didn't matter. Mags or mixture off or whatever wasn't going to matter. It uh, didn't matter about me turning off mags and shutting the key off and fuel system because it all came from the tank and had soaked me in gas and was you know, plenty of liquid inside the cockpit, but certainly I didn't know what the issue was at that time. One of the things that they've done with these aircraft today is that they have made, instead of making things square or stop sign angles, they have made fuel tanks round and it gives them a lot better stability. They've also encased their uh, fuel tanks, you know, have a bladder made out of carbon fiber that surrounds the fuel tank. So if you do have a leak or something, it goes out of the exhaust tube like the excess oil does in an aerobatic airplane and basically just goes, you know, outside the airplane. Yeah, I'm glad they're making some of those improvements. Well, Henry, as you look back on on this uh, incident, what lessons learned can the rest of us GA pilots take from this event? Uh, well, you need to know your equipment for sure. You need to practice and rehearse what happens in an emergency situation. I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I hadn't rehearsed a few times how to get out of the airplane and know where things were without being able to see things, would have had a different outcome. Um, glad that I'd parachuted before, but I think if you're going to fly an airplane and do low-level aerobatics, you probably need to go take a few lessons just so you know what to expect. I think that helped me tremendously to know how a parachute worked. I didn't realize at the time that my parachute from National was an emergency-type parachute that had an actual spring that helps it deploy faster, um, unlike what you see on TV with the square parachutes. It was a round parachute. So, yeah, just... Uh, Rehearse, know your stuff. Yeah, it seemed to probably saved your life in this instance here. Yep, and, you know, trying to keep a cool head because there's nothing that, you know, panicking and screaming out loud is not really going to help you. So you were also sharing with me some of your interesting response to this is you mentioned you had third-degree burns over 30% of your body, and that led you to start a foundation to help burn victims. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your foundation? Yeah, I was super lucky because where my accident happened was in the San Antonio area. And I was life flighted, not by my choice, but by, I guess the uh, helicopter's choice. They took me to one of the best burn units in the world, which is called Brook Army mm -hmm. Medical Center Burn Unit in San Antonio. And it was during non-war time. So I was a civilian pilot and I was able to get healed there. And I spent almost two months there and had wonderful care and wonderful doctors and nurses and just, you know, rehab and everything. And so I met a woman in the burn unit that had was doing some uh, volunteer work and asked me to participate in their foundation and I went to a meeting and I sat around the board and I noticed that nobody on the board had ever been burned. And so I said, probably not for me. Mm -hmm. 
So we started our own foundation called the Moonlight Fund, which does things for uh, families of burn survivors and, you know, kids and camps and different things around the San Antonio area. Great. The Moonlight Foundation. Yes, sir. Okay, great. So for our listeners, uh, please give that a look if you're interested in supporting some of Henry's work with helping other burn victims. Well, Henry, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you, guys. Good luck with the Albatross you just bought a partnership in and fly safe. Well, a harrowing story from Henry. And my takeaway is this. If I were sitting in my airplane with my eyes closed, how fast can I exit my airplane without looking at anything, take my headset off, unsnap my seatbelt, reach over, unlock the door and push it out of the way, push a seat out of the way if I needed to, could I do that? Could you do that? And that may be the takeaway from this incident that we just heard about with Henry, is that kind of presence of mind in the middle of chaos helped him survive. So perhaps that's something we can try on our own and make sure that the likelihood that we'd ever have to do anything like that is pretty small. But if it ever happened, just a little bit of preparation will help us get out of it. Henry, thanks again for sharing your story with us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.